regarding the people that started me questioning my faith. I don't, I saw a lot in, in the behind the scenes stuff and some of them just weren't good humans, you know, and it, and it was contrary to what I thought was supposed to be what everyone was emulating. But then that gets into the whole persona conversation as I started to realize a lot of people have personas and the persona is what everybody wants to follow, not the actual human, if that makes sense. This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual D and re construction. Season 2, Episode 21, Personas. Did it work? It did indeed. Well, glory. John Allen. You've been kidnapped by the Light FM. <laughs> I'm just trying to put you at ease because I know this wasn't your favorite idea. I mean, it's not that I don't like it. It's just so much that I don't like it. Well, you were specifically the reason I thought we should do this. All four of us. Why? Of course, they put, they put the two nervous guys together. Okay, hold on. Pause. Hey everyone, it's Kevin. If you listened to last week's episode, you know that we're taking a few weeks to do some different things from our norm before we officially end this season and take a short break. You also know that last week we featured a conversation between Derek and Jamie that sort of marked the time for where they are now, and it also introduced the idea that each of us, as the four producers of this podcast, were going to take time to answer the same three questions. But here's the thing. As soon as we paired off, I knew that there was no way to do those questions with our fellow producer John without some greater context into John's life. John tends to stay behind the scenes. He doesn't do social media. He no longer subscribes to Netflix. And where you hear the other three of us in the actual episodes, John builds websites and information systems and task management-y things for us. But beyond that, I've known John for a long time, and I just had a hunch about where the conversation needed to go in order for it to be real. So I decided to take John's three questions in another direction. Now, I want to say that just like last week, this differs from our usual content in that it's a very personal conversation between longtime friends, and to the point where neither John nor I knew what it might possibly mean to anyone else, or honestly, if it will be able to land with our audience at all. To me, it feels like a risk, but I'm thinking of it as allowing our listeners to eavesdrop on a discussion that we would have had anyway, at some point, and one which was only possible because of our friendship and mutual trust. It seems to me that it's actually been working on this podcast, which has caused someone like John to confront the extent to which his thinking and faith have changed. It's made me wonder... If one of our producers has entered the process of spiritual D and reconstruction in the way John has, might that also speak to some of our listeners' experience? John is, in some ways, like no one we've spoken to, and that got me wondering 
Is there room on the podcast for a discussion like this? So, all that to say, this is an experiment. We're trying something new again, and we'll see what happens. Okay, so let's get back into it. All right, here's the fun part. Here's the caveat for this whole conversation. And you know this about me, but our our dear listeners do not. Um, I forget everything. I mean, absolutely everything. There are times when I have to text my mom, hey, mom, what year did that thing happen? Mm -hmm. Because I have to put it on some application for something. If it doesn't, if it doesn't get categorized in the memory banks as something super important for the tasks that are directly in front of me, it just completely falls out the other end. So, uh, so that drives a lot of your nerdiness. Oh yeah. Your information as a means of security. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, is I was sort of doing some mental prep for this convo and I thought, like, I don't know, why why doesn't that stuff stay in the memory banks? Like, I subconsciously did not deem it important. I don't know what that means, but I didn't. I do remember uh, locations. <laughs> I do remember that part. I was born in Kansas City, and... Uh, was there for a little tiny bit of time. I was on the Missouri side. I believe my parents would want that to be said. <laughs> Kansas City on the Missouri side, not the Kansas side. And then uh, pretty early on, we moved to upstate New York. Lived in Rochester for a long time. Uh, That's a dreary place. That. It is dreary, but when you're a little kid, it's a wonderland because of the snow. And then for a little bit of time, there's uh, Washington, D.C. and Like in the city? We, yeah, like in the city. We lived like a block from the White House. We lived in the suite of a hotel, like the top floor suite of a hotel, not a fancy one. <laughs> it was just, I mean, I remember having hardly no money at all, but it was the funnest time of my life. So Kansas City, upstate New York, Rochester, uh, Washington, D.C., and then you landed they landed. And then Texas. And then Texas, right. Tyler, Texas. Tyler, Texas. Rose capital of the world. What role did Christendom play in all of that for your parents and for you? Uh, it was the it was the community hub. It was kind of the whole thing. I mean, mom always taught in Christian schools. I, I think she used to teach in public schools, but I wasn't uh, attending the schools um, when she was doing that. So it was always Christian schools. There was a Grace Community High School and junior high. Did they try to church. did they try to teach you the importance of that, of your own faith, of belief? Yeah. Well it was just um standard of course <laughs> the further we've gotten along in this podcast, the more I've realized there's no such thing as standard from from all the stories and the data we've collected about our absolutely dear, wonderful callers. Um, Mm -hmm. normal, it's not a thing. So I was about to say, you know, normal Christian family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, normal Christian family, (laughs) but, uh, I mean, church every Sunday, uh, Wednesday night youth group, whenever the heck it was, uh, field trips, mission trips. What are your earliest memories of that as far as how you felt? Did you, do you have a, a, like a faith experience where you, where you remember it feeling real to you 
or any of that? Yes. It was you're asking for what is the point in which it crossed over from the the faith that you were taught and just went along with up until the point it became your thing. Yes. Right. So, um junior high-ish, I used to um I was a big summer camp guy, so I would attend uh Pine Cove camps outside of Tyler, Texas. I'd go to like two camps per summer, and then as soon as I was old enough, I would work at those camps <laughs> um, just to be whatever. So I think I was – it was my first year working. There was a thing, and it was like you know the worship service at one particular night. And I clearly remember how I felt. I do not necessarily remember what happened. Initially, it, it was kind of scary and felt super weird because uh, there's other people like falling over. <laughs> Okay, so and, it's a charismatic thing. Yes, that's what that means, then yes. So, well, I mean, it's, you know, all the slain in the spirit and gifts and all. I mean, I thought your parents were more old school than that, though. So that camp was uh, different. They are now. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they were at some point. Uh, so, yeah, Circle C Ranch, if I'm getting that name right, there was some worship thing. And I'm all I remember was I'm sort of singing along and doing my thing, and I ended up kind of like ended up on my knees because my legs were killing me and they just felt weird. And there was this weird instance of, I don't know what words to use, but like perfection. So kind of, kind of euphoria, everything to me, it sounds so stupid saying it out loud, but I felt like I was in the exact center of the room and everyone was uh, perfectly arranged around me. And of course, none of this logically could be true, but it felt like everything for about 30 to 45 seconds was absolutely perfect. Hmm. And I had no worries and I was extremely happy and everything and whatever. So based on the instructions and some of the other things I had seen people experiencing, that was – I forgot the terms they used. I'm like the worst interviewee. But they they used some kind of terms and like, oh, this is when you – are insert term and you should go to the back room and pray with people. So I was like, oh, here I am. Everything's perfect. I'm super euphoric. Everything's exciting. I feel just so good. This must be the thing. Okay, I'm going to get up. Here's the funny part. My legs had fallen asleep, like completely, like both of them. <laughs> and I go to stand up and I fall over. But because my legs were asleep. <laughs> I couldn't get them to work. So two dudes hauled me off into the other room. I was like, my legs are just asleep. But I I, I didn't want to forget that. So the they thought you'd me. fallen over in the Lord, but... Yes. But your legs were just... Instead, it was a lack of blood flow for an extended period of time. <laughs> That's a pretty fun story. But that, that moment of euphoria, I... I can't I don't forget and I don't negate it. I do not think in whatever process that I've been through recently that has made me question all the things it it still has not negated the value of that experience. Does that make sense? Mhm. I don't know what to do with that. I just know that this is the first time I've had to recall it in a long time and I feel almost exactly the same about it. Mhm. But you did also you already expressed that your immediate I guess instinct within a community was to move away from being just one of the people 
say, showing up to a service or being served at a camp and you immediately wanted to move into a support role yourself to be on the team making the thing happen. Hmm. And yeah, that's, that's true. And that's something I've, I mean, ever since I've known you has been true of you. Uh, what is it? Eight years now. So um, do you think within that, your your desire to to always serve the thing or make the thing happen and never just be one of the people who shows up. Do you think that has to do with maintaining uh, some sort of sense of security or, or do you think it has to do with maybe avoiding things at, at times? This is something I've been wondering about and like knowing that we were going to have this conversation. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Cause I know to some degree it's been true of my, my church experience as well is that it's actually safer to serve when you don't want to be mm. called out in a crowd to do something. I remember us talking connect. about that. Yeah. Do I, don't, some... I don't have a firm answer to what you're saying, but I can add to what you're saying, which is, I think, uh, we hadn't got to this part of my story, but I spent 15 years in the music industry, mostly as a audio engineer, but got into all the other roles. Um, and you did a lot of, of like tech mentoring in that time too, right? With Yeah, I really a, tried to. A very large... Christian organization. Yeah. Wait, are we not talking about it? No, we can say it. I just didn't want to. Oh. Well, it's defunct, and I think the law is looking for the guy that ran the place. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's Acquire the Fire. Acquire the Fire, which is... ATF. Yeah, always been an amazing name. Um, but, I mean, that's the thing. is like I, I think of something like that, and we, we both know so many people who came out of that same organization or spent time in it. And really connected emotionally and psychologically to what was going on there. And yet my experience of you, despite being all, all around that for so long, was that it's almost as though you were able to hide in plain sight and not subject yourself to as much of that by always being the person making the science work and helping other people learn those things, you know? I mean, did you feel like you were avoiding being the guy that was always at the front of the worship service with arms high and heart abandoned by, by doing that. Um, like, is that a, is that a conscious thing? Because, because for someone that spent so much time in church and in service, I just think it's funny that you managed to avoid ever having to be like really expressive about it. I don't, I don't remember what the exact question was, but your, your concept is spot on. When I would go to churches and would stay there for a while, I would always volunteer to mix. And generally, whatever church I was at, it was a welcomed thing because usually church engineers are not awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed, I don't know what the word is, but I enjoyed the acclaim of being that touring guy that's good at mixing. And then it just let me hide in the booth, which is awesome. Because now that I've had some time to think through it all, I didn't agree with hardly anything coming off the stage of ATF shows. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't agree with like a whole lot of stuff coming out of the church I was in last. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them were cult of personality, to be honest. I don't know. I just have a big problem with that. Hmm. So walk me quickly then through your later teens and your twenties with all of that, as far as, um, mm, yeah. So, uh, it, it, that's where I first started uh, getting into audio, into sound. 
I would DJ every single party. Like I was using Winamp back in the day. This is how I know that I'm old and decrepit. But I clearly remember getting Winamp visualizers and putting it up on projectors at people's house parties. <laughs> but I was just the only guy that knew how to get a bunch of music onto a hard drive <laughs> at the time. That was my only unique thing and the only trick I had. And so but, I was. But again, there it's like not even in a religious setting. It's there yeah. are there are key. It's the mass social, of knowledge, right? And there are key social and emotional and communal things going on relationally yep. in those environments, and you are on the sidelines making the thing happen but not in the center of the thing Mm -hmm. it's a big theme in your life i think yeah well uh after getting into it and reading about fives that feels sort of normal ish Mm -hmm. but then i met derek and i was like oh (laughs) (laughs) you could have different kinds of fives with four wings which i didn't know so anyway high school was great uh private Christian school. And honestly, man, I had some great memories as well as some terrible ones. Like I'm sure everyone did in this high school. Um, I was super chunky. Uh, I've always been the fat kid my whole life. And it was of course noteworthy of the skinny, annoying kids. Uh, ironically, except for a couple of guys who always gave me crap, I was able to fit in with every group because I would chameleon my way into their little click, you know, Mm-hmm. I was, I, I would mimic their mannerisms. I'm able to understand this now. At the time, it didn't make any sense. I just thought I got along with everybody. But really, what I was doing is I was adopting a persona they were comfortable with. That mm-hmm. has gone on to help me a lot in the last few years. Understanding that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there was high school, and then I started to go to Greenville College in um, in Greenville, Illinois which was where Jars of Clay started. And oh my gosh, in all their recruiting stuff, they never shut up about Jars of Clay. And when you're on campus, they never shut up about Jars of Clay. (laughs) And ironically, one of the last artists I had signed a contract to my company, the last major contract I had was Jars of Clay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Before uh, before they decided to kind of hang up their touring hat. Mm -hmm. And I I I did some of their last shows. So I found that nice cyclical irony. It is. Enjoyable. And, and good guys. That's a better oh way to gosh. end than with something terrifying. Oh. Uh, love the Jars guys. I uh, went to Greenville. I went there for a semester and flunked out hard. <laughs> Moved back to Tyler. Uh, so then that summer, I was volunteering at Pine Cove, the camps that I worked at for a long time. I was – no, I think I was paid at that point. I was working in the kitchen as a chef. Um I was. I had to go chaperone some people. So there's these these young, felt young to me, uh, freshmen in high school kids. The camp's policy was somebody had to chaperone them if they wanted to go off campgrounds. They wanted to go to this concert of this Southern Gospel group called Truth, and they were begging me to go along. And they're like, "We need a ride. We don't have a car. Can you please take us? Please, please, please." And I was like, "Fine, whatever. I don't care." So I go. I'm enthralled by the fact they have a tour bus, that they have a semi-truck full of crap, that they have these amazing stacks of speakers and these huge mixing consoles, which I later found out were total rubbish. But they were huge, and I was impressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In that instance, uh, size was impressive. And I I walked up, I stormed up to the front of house guy after the show and said, hey, how do I get your job? Because I really don't like what I'm doing. And he was kind of taken aback for a second. And he goes, well, I mean... Tell me about yourself. So we talked for a little bit. I gave him my information. Two weeks later, I was on the road with him. I 
parade about it with mom and dad. And I said, mom, they offered me a gig. I really want to go on the road. College sucks. What do you think? And my dear, loving, supportive parents said, is this really what you want to do? And I said, yes. And they're like, okay, great. So at 19, I took off on a tour bus, got paid 50 bucks a week, was instructed I was supposed to raise $500 a week in support money. I was supposed to pay my way into this. And I was the bitch. (laughs) I did grunt work. Did you have an idealized image of the road? Did the idea of touring sound nice? Oh, yeah. Plus, Um, if you're on the road, you don't have to plug in anywhere specifically. Nope. Or be known. It's the career equivalent of what I did as a kid. Right. Yeah. Huh. This is nice. We're uncovering something. Yep. Yep. Hiding in plain sight with John Allen. (laughs) It's an art. (laughs) It's a a real art. I guess there, there are a few other things that would have happened of significance before I met you. Um, Wait, what things? As far as life, major I'm life not playing things. Coy. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. Well, there was that one thing. Yeah, there was at least that one thing. Yeah. I uh, was still in truth, and there was this girl that kept coming to shows, and I was uh, sex infatuated with her. Uh, I had I had actually kind of started to drop some weight on the road because it was just so physically strenuous. And did the appropriate amount of social peacocking and got myself looking good and bought some nice clothes. I've spent a lot of time and effort blocking a lot of this out. So there's going to be not great details. But the short version is got married. Uh, How long did you date or court, I guess? is. Uh, yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, maybe like a year-ish. I believe it was for sure called courting. And there was rule books and we followed them. Mm-hmm. But, um, you, but you were able to date for about a year, and then you were still yeah. on the road when I mean, it was pretty married, early right? on in Truth. So I started Truth in, at 19, so I think I got married like 22-ish, maybe, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. I for sure did not know what I was doing uh, on but it's just multiple, what you do. on all fronts. It is just what you do, and it was the whole, it's better to get married than me burning in lust situation. So that, the burning part was definitely going on, so... Uh, was married for about two years, uh, moved to Nashville somewhere in there. I think I, oh my gosh, I'm so bad at this timeline part. Again, having trying to wipe all this out. Uh, at some point I left truth and started working for Sonic flood, um, back in the day. And so I ironically did a whole lot of my international touring with them. They went all over the place. We did Thailand and Singapore and all kinds of crazy stuff. The other irony being that you were with them when they were touring the album that had my two songs on it. I know. That is so (laughs) weird. It's so funny. I didn't even know you. I didn't even know that they were stealing your stuff. (laughs) I'm okay with it now. I used to have a harder time with that. Now I'm glad for them to have their names on that music. Yes. You've you've seen the ways of that. Mm -hmm. But that's a different boy's story. So... You you were married so, two yeah. years. You're on you're on tour the better part of the, that time. Married for two years. We only had a couple of friends at this church. This church was crazy, crazy rules and strict and all this kind of monkey business, and it was very authoritarian. And 
it was the worst. In hindsight, I just was like doing what I was supposed to do. Uh, that comes into play later pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. I, she starts getting super distant. She's mad at me all the time. Uh, to be clear, I was also a stupid young married person that I can guarantee did not treat her the way she should have been. There was lots of selfishness on my part. There was lots of whatever. Uh, however, none of that, none of that is even remotely equal to, to her side of the equation. I just wanted to say that I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. So we go to church elders at this one church we were at. She'll remain nameless. Uh, and they said, you should get counselors, separate counselors. Cool. So like 100 bucks an hour times two, <laughs> we have these two counselors. Uh, we had both been doing really good about saving money, got a bunch of money from the wedding, and we're like burning through cash. And I'm fiscally concerned about that, but emotionally okay with it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, second or third session, we go in to visit the church elder who's supposed to be overseeing this. And I get told, well, we think uh, separation is what you need to do. And the church is sanctioning this separation. And because you're the man, you need to be the one to leave the house. And I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what? Mm. So I move into a hotel in Cool Springs. And I I remember that hotel in Cool Springs. I have a hard time passing that at this point because it was like the low point of this whole story. Uh, she gave me divorce papers and – nope, back up before I got the papers <laughs> – uh, I'm coming home from Chiang Mai, Thailand, and that was an unsanctioned restaurant. The point is I got what's known as the Thailand flu, which is horrible, horrible kind of life-threatening bug. Mm-hmm. Um, I am dying inside on the plane. Side note, there's a benefit to the way um, restrooms in airplanes are created insofar as you can be seated and reach the sink at the same time. Mm. You may infer from there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and due to some uh, cheap airline ticket purchasing, it took us 40 hours to get home. I probably needed medical attention. Oh, I know I'm getting off track, but when we got off the plane in Tokyo, I, before Tokyo, I got up and I went up to talk to a flight attendant and I said, hey man, do you have any like stomach medicine? I'm feeling really weird. He looks me up and down and disappears behind a curtain. Comes back five minutes later and says, hey, I've talked to the head head flight attendant or whatever who's talked to the captain, captain who has radioed Tokyo who has a quarantine team waiting for you because we're pretty sure you have XYZ. And we need you to go sit in this section. And I was like, what? You bastard. I just wanted some pills or something. <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> I was just... actually hoping for a Pepto. Um... Yeah, just, I don't know, like a firm handshake or something, you jerk. Anyway, <laughs> I... Uh, I like when the plane landed, I, they moved me kind of near the door and I kind of had to do this like perp walk out of the plane. And there's this little, this little Asian lady with a face mask on and a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we take off and I was like, oh, I don't need, I don't need to sit. She didn't speak any English at all. Uh, what she didn't know is the whole time when she wasn't looking, I would hold my breath and try to push um, blood into my face because <laughs> I knew I was white as a sheet. And I managed to talk her out of it as I was heading for the door with like the biohazard symbol on it and the whole band is going the opposite direction. I managed to talk my way out of it and continued on in the trip. Needless to say, I spent the entire night in Tokyo in a five-star hotel and all I ever saw was the toilet. Mm. So that was unfortunate. Um, so, uh, I get home and I land and it suddenly strikes me all of the problems that are happening in my life. It was a delightful 
excursion away from my problems. But when I landed in LAX, which is the worst day of my life, and everything gets compared against that, um, is I land there and it suddenly I realize I'm dying. I don't have any health insurance. My wife absolutely hates me. And I don't have anywhere to live <laughs> because uh, the hotel was too expensive and I was running out of money. And so I land in LA and realize I'm actually homeless mm. <laughs> due to a church sanctioned homelessness and I'm dying and I have no insurance and I don't know what to do. I should have gone to the ER, but I didn't. So shortly after that, I got papers from her. I waited all the way up until the contested period because I was like, look, I said forever. I don't know what the deal is. You're not telling me what's going on. I don't know what the deal is. What the heck? And uh, so I gave her the papers. Of course, much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some dear friends of mine took me to dinner that night. Well, first they asked me, did you do it? They knew it was the last day. They said, did you do it? And I said, yes, it's terrible. I'm miserable. I don't know what to do. And they said, please come to dinner. They take me to dinner and they tell me, we didn't want to tell you this until after you made that decision on your own, but she's been having an affair with this person for the last year. <laughs> and that person was our only married friends. This was a gentleman who had a wife and two young daughters. And we hung out with them all the time. So, of course, I clearly had visuals of this individual, <laughs> which, which, I don't know, it was probably a good two, three months of reliving every moment of my life in agony, just trying to figure out whatever. I mean, tons of feeling of inadequacy, as if a fat guy at, you know, at heart already didn't have enough <laughs> feelings of inadequacy. There was that whole situation, so... After what I refer to as the great unpleasantness, um, it's it's taken a long time to um, to get over all those feelings of inadequacy. So um, when you and I became friends like eight years ago, talking about personality and talking about uh, the Enneagram and doing my own self-discovery has been a path to, you know what? I'm actually pretty good with who I am. I'm actually a good person. Mm-hmm. Versus the the measly shriveled up version of a person that I assumed the world thought of me. Mm. So I didn't want to be like super Debbie Downer just now. <laughs> You're on the airing of grief, so uh, it's true. It's grief has been aired. Was there a moment or a? kind of a touch point, a linchpin that you could say was sort of the catalyst where you began to dismantle aspects of your faith or began to do the deconstruction thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd say half of the artists I ever worked for were Christian or labeled in genre as Christian, I think is the important way to say that. And regarding the people that started me questioning my faith, I don't, I saw a lot in, in the behind the scenes stuff. And some of them just weren't good humans, you know, and it, and it was contrary to what I thought was supposed to be what everyone was emulating. But then that gets into the whole persona conversation as I started to realize a lot of people have personas and the persona is what everybody wants to follow, not the actual human, if that makes sense. It does. And ironically, in this whole trying to figure myself out, I started to realize I was guilty of the same thing. 
I'm not sure if that's just because I was mimicking what I thought I was supposed to, but yeah. Hmm. I still find myself guilty of personaing. <laughs> oh, and so I was at a church, um, the last major church I've been at, and was mixing, hiding behind the board, um, found myself not wanting to go when I wasn't on the volunteer call sheet. <laughs> and then uh, would just make the justification of, oh, I'll just watch the live stream. But I, I saw a lot behind the scenes and got to know very closely a lot of the upper leadership. And I was not a fan of what I found. <laughs> so it made me just kind of be like, mm, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And I told myself that my catchphrase was, I need a break from the building. And now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing I need a break from the personas. I needed a break from the incongruity between the personas and the actual people. Because it's the same problem that Facebook causes for so many people. Everybody think, and Instagram, probably worse. You think you're supposed to be everything perfect. And so the moments that don't live up to this perfection that I'm either hearing from stage or seeing in my feed, then I suddenly have feelings of inadequacy and I'm not enough and whatever. And I, all the studies I've seen about how Facebook makes everybody depressed, I'm pretty sure that's because everyone is only ever viewing the persona and not the real people. Does that make sense? Did I just... No, it totally, it totally does. And within a church scenario, you're in a place where people are supposed to be in the one environment where their soul is free, and instead, it's a lot of appearances and adopted personas and and people not living in the truth of who they are, what they're struggling with, how they feel, what they're doubting, what they are excited about even. All of those things are stifled or hidden. And and the break points, like the big stuff, that, that'll come to the surface in the form of I got to talk to somebody in counseling or I got to talk to somebody in pastoral care department. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like the little things, it's not part of the dialogue. So it's happy face, happy face, happy face, disaster. Yeah. But I was, if you got I was a disaster... In a- Let's take you off to the pastoral department that's in this dark corner. Right, right. So it's just the extremes. And then even within the disaster, everything is very cookie cutter and how it's supposed to be handled. And and yeah, and it's, it's really weird. I met you at some point during your experience of all this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. like when we moved here, this is not obviously for you, but for anyone listening, we started doing a sort of weekly feast where we'd get together and I was cooking. Vegan feast. Vegan feast. Uh, And I was exploring a lot of that stuff. So I was cooking and I can't not cook for more than 30 people. So we just started hanging out. And that evolved into a Bible study group. It was a lot of people just in Nashville coming out of Acquire the Fire or themselves in the touring industry or trying to get into the touring industry. So it was just a lot of that. A A lot of us who are just kids with religious experience, religious baggage. And when that thing evolved, we started doing kind of the slow work of, I don't know, for me, it was, it was a lot like, like kind of letting people in on the process I had been going through myself just as a pastor in, in starting to take things apart and not find anything that I was supposed to believe, like not finding any of those conclusions satisfying or even accurate to what I was actually seeing. So, but I do remember, and I, I say that all to say is that over those early years, I, I think your attitude in, in everything was still like, eventually I was going to get to the answer. And 
your take on everything we were discussing in taking apart things like um, LGBT issues and hell and all of the different, we did, you know, the entire series of taboos. And I always felt like you were just waiting at some point for us to be like, okay, so then what are we going to do to fix this? And yeah, well, I've kind of always been the action guy. Right. And the, and then the, like the thing I, I never wanted to say that I was sort of waiting for you to understand on your own was that I wasn't, I wasn't trying to lead any of those discussions to say that there was something to be fixed. I was, I was sort of leading them so that everybody could share some space with me and maybe come to the same realization I had, which was that maybe it can't be fixed and maybe it shouldn't be fixed. Maybe it's contrary to everything that, that decent spirituality and faith is meant to stand for. To be clear, when you say it, what are you talking about? Specifically church, dogma, you know, certitude. The institution. Yeah, the institution and all of its baggage, like the, you know, the faith you're meant to have in it and the, uh, the beliefs you're yep. meant to subscribe to. I, I don't know. We've, we've spent a lot of years now unraveling that. And so you said it's, it's the people, really, the, the facades and the masks which is literally where we get the word hypocrite from, that were the catalyst for your deconstruction. But when those things started to change for you, and you weren't sure you were, say, connecting with anything that was coming from the pulpit, or really even wanting to be in the environment of the institution anymore, was your first instinct within that that something was right, or that there, you were doing something wrong? That there was something wrong with you because of that? That's tricky. I don't, I never thought there was something wrong with me because that's not how my brain works. I thought, my initial thought was there's something wrong in the data sets I have collected <laughs> in observations about all of this. I need more, I need more observations. And so as the observations continued, my thought was, I, well, it was the persona problem. It took me a while to get to that. And in, in realizing that the further away from the real human that the persona gets is where the issues come in. Because those incongruities in, say, a lead pastor, they start to show in the form of, like, yelling at people, in the form of anger, in the form of trying to use tricks that I had seen many, many speakers use at corporate events. There's lots of corporate trainers that tell you how to be a good orator, to give a nice speech, how to rouse the crowd to their feet. And from the corporate world and seeing some of that coaching, you know, when you go pro as a pastor, a lot of them, well, I'm not sure, but I have seen the results of what appears to be coaching on that front. And to me, that started to feel like psychological manipulation. Which again went into the whole persona idea. Right. You're so you're so nice and diplomatic about it. I mean, it is psychological manipulation. (laughs) It is. Yeah. Hundred percent. I I I'm still working it out. I don't have an answer. There are things. There are a lot less things that I know to be true (laughs) Mm -hmm. than I than I used to think were true. Um, The things I know to be true is good humans are still to be found, uh, despite the institution on multiple fronts. So that's when I run into the whole moral problem is, is good on a large scale okay coming through manipulation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I don't. In all of this, though, it's amazing because as someone who, as we've been saying, you, you spent so much of your life uh, 
avoiding the center of the thing and supporting it and serving it and whatever else and knowing all the technical stuff between your legs not working experience at camp and and today branded that yeah (laughs) um and today it's like within all of that you talk very much about the community the people the embodied expression of a belief system but what i never hear you talk about and i'm I'm not just saying this for like even today but in general i never hear you talk about your beliefs in far as far or ever as far as god or jesus or um, what you believed about salvation or the necessity of it the character of god what god was like and so it's amazing because despite your background your your approach in life has always been very humanistic and I don't mean that as a bad thing, because humanism is actually something that can survive a crisis of faith. Most people still connect with a lot of the ethics and and morals they've come to develop as beings and human beings, whether they still claim a faith or not. You don't express much in regards to spirituality. Do you know why? Well, that's what I'm getting at. I don't know why. I don't either. I I don't... I don't know what to do with all of this. I know that the community that came up around the way I grew up as a whole was beneficial. Mm -hmm. I know that the very tiny little church that my parents go to is the community that means everything to them. And... When I go there, it is such a loving, caring, honest environment, which, which has led me, and it is, it is the 100% opposite of a megachurch. It is a tiny, I'm going to get the denomination wrong. I'm sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> it's a tiny little, maybe Episcopal, the guys wear robes <laughs> and there's kneelers, mm-hmm. uh, but um it is it is just such an honest, uh, loving and caring little community. So it's always been interesting. I think maybe that's what's kind of making me hold on to the good left in this scenario is because um, of, of examples like that. Does that mean, am I making sense? Yeah. But I mean, all I'm saying is because of all of us, you know, of the four of us who work on this show, the two, me and you, we've known each other the longest I'm just saying I've never I've never heard in any of your anecdotes or or data or presentations that you do from the sidelines of any time we've ever had a group and you were on your iPad researching. Uh, I've never heard you talk about any baggage associated with the belief that. Do you know? Do you know um, why you it's were just unsaved? Why. That or that you needed to be saved? That you needed that God had to do something that you ever feared hell i've never heard any of that from you and it almost strikes me as though there's some part of you that's never believed a lot of that stuff and that's why you've you've hidden your beliefs in the community rather than the actual thing the community is gathered around supposedly and that 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 psychologically you've done the same thing in your beliefs as you've done tangibly in your life whether in uh in church or in in camps, in in work, in in everything you've done, that you've always avoided the spotlight or the vulnerability or the lack of security that would come 
with actually evaluating those things or being known for what you what you do or don't believe. Does that make any sense? Mm, well done, Freud. Well done, Zah. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong in what you're saying. Um, I, I know never thought because about it in those terms. I know because you said that very like you made a joke, but it was a deflection. So, hundred <laughs> percent deflection. I mean, I'm I'm uncomfortable with the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. So, as far as I understand, I don't know about all fives, but this is true of me. I need to know stuff, and when I don't know stuff, it makes me insecure. So, if you ask me something that I know something about, I am like the stalwart leader that can get shit done. Mm-hmm. If if it's something I don't know anything about, then I'm not going to talk until I know about it. Mm-hmm. So you are correct that I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know, but and I could be crazy here, but the lot to me, the logical reason I don't talk about that is first because I don't know what I I don't know my own situation going on, so I don't know what value I would have. And it is also I don't require the emotional catharsis of complaining about things on this front. I think that, and to be clear, I am not downplaying a single one of our callers. Uh, everything that they've had to say, I'm certain has been valuable to them as well as all of the listeners. That's, that's the reason I'm one of the founding members of this podcast is because I want those people to have that opportunity. To me, when I speak, I believe there is too much negativity in the world. And I'm not going to get all hippy-dippy on this, but I... I don't want to add any more negativity because it doesn't help me and it also makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh it makes sense to hear you say it. I don't I'm not sure I agree, but I'm not that there's a problem with that. Well, have you noticed in all of our meetings, our sort of offline meetings that I'm I'm sort of like talking about what actions we can take because to me identifying the problem and then attempting to fix it is the way it can contribute to the human race. Right. Well, I know, and that's that's one of the things I've always known to be true of you. I just find so it interesting because... complaining when I, about my own situation does not get to the action points faster. See, but that's the thing is, you don't know the right action points to take if you haven't actually... Eva- it's like trying to rush to the prescription without determining what the illness is. You have to do the work of dismantling something in order to know what it is you want to rebuild or if you want to rebuild. But in your case, I think there's there's a more subtle masking happening in that the, 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 um, the vulnerable underbelly of this whole thing is that you developed that in every arena of your life so well, internally and externally, that to peel off that layer now is going to expose that beneath it is maybe not necessarily you know anything you ever felt intensely about or held so deeply that it was a part of you and that's i'm not saying that's necessarily wrong i just find it fascinating because i think that that has that has created you to be a person who is doing so who is already so much of what other people are trying to dismantle and become it's like seeing the the place for action seeing the place for embodiment but that it was that same thing of, of we're going to try to fix something that I'm not sure we can fix. Um, and just well, that. Well, that's, for the record, I recognize what you're, what you're trying to bring up in me. And I'm, I'm, thank you for that. I, it's uncomfortable, that's for sure, because I don't, I don't know. But my answer to everything is give me more data. And that's, 
that is what this podcast has been for me is listening to all these calls. And I look through all the data of the people who have submitted and told their stories and talked about their all the the things that, at least on a sheet of paper, make them up. Um, I do not know what the path to reconstruction is, but I am certain that the people who have been through this longer than I have do. Or at least in the aggregate, meaning multiple people, do sort of have a picture of what reconstruction looks like. And I think, at least since we've been talking about this, I think on a personal level, I'm kind of looking to them to tell me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I for sure have not worked it out. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what actions to take. But I know that that answer exists. And I suppose selfishly, I'm looking forward to it getting there faster. Mm-hmm. Well, you aren't, you aren't someone who is thinking suppressed, and you're not someone who is doing suppressed, but you are someone who is occasionally feeling suppressed. You know, in those three core components that make us who we are. What do I... I mean, the, I already knew that. Right, I know. I'm just saying that within... That fear can cause you to try to look to be the... And Rob Bell says this all the time. It's like, remember that you're not a human doing... It's okay to be a human being. And so much of the messes we get ourselves in are the result of forgetting that and trying to trying to live in action so much that we never really evaluate what we're acting on or why we're acting. Yeah, I mean, you I told myself I got out of the touring industry because I made it to the top and didn't didn't like what I saw. Right. I, I think the honest Started truth was... Started from the bottom, I, now we hear. <laughs> I, I think the honest truth was, I, I just... I didn't like what I saw in them, and then I saw it in myself, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. So the last, like, I don't know, what? Four years that I've been off the road? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to work it out. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a time ever as a kid in church where you felt like shame before God, where you thought God is there and I'm not good enough and God has to kill himself for me or kill his son in order to make room for me at the table. Was there ever a time where you genuinely took that on board and thought that you needed to live in reflection of it? Uh, maybe? I mean, I recall those feelings. Uh, that was definitely one of those things that didn't get logged in the keep forever memory bank section. <laughs> See, because that, that is what... And I'm not, I'm not saying any of this just, just to make you uncomfortable, though I did tell you you probably would be uncomfortable. through. So, you were uncomfortable before we started. But um, I say that because it's absolutely fascinating to me as for everyone we've talked to, for the other three of us, if I asked any of myself or, or Derek or Jamie that same exact question, I know all three of us would say, absolutely, without hesitation. You know, it wouldn't be a, a, a prolonged maybe. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Then I think what you're saying is perhaps my memory selectivity is intentional and not chemical. <laughs> I think what I'm saying, and, and it's weird to hypothesize in a, in a conversation like this where we're just trying to get some some basic aspects of your story, but since we scheduled these things, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think what I'm trying to say, and I'm not trying to present it as an answer, 
but as a possibility, is that your life, you've constructed your life very intentionally and very meticulously to avoid the deeper question uh, of what you actually do or don't believe. I'm not sure you've evaluated that. Uh, I'm not sure you ever bought into it to the degree a lot of people who we talked to did. Um, I'm not sure that even the thing you chose to do in order to support it, because it was just the right thing to do, you, you chose technical avenues to do that in. You know, I, I have to live with, with preaching the thing that I just, that question I just asked you. I have to live with the fact that I told people that there was something wrong with them and that, and that God needed to save them or that they needed to be saved or they would be eternally separated from God and tortured. I have to live with that. I told people that, that I, that I didn't just believe it. I told people it was true. I just finely tuned the microphones of people that said that. Yeah. And that's what I mean is, is in all that time, I, I think you were avoiding internalizing that message. You're, it wasn't hundred percent. You were avoiding, you were avoiding saying yes or no to it. You were avoiding, ironically, in all you're, you're seeking to do so much, you were avoiding doing anything with that message. I think that's really true. I mean, up until the point, like in the earlier years when it became actionable, which is go on this mission trip, do this thing, achieve this thing. That made sense. But I don't know that you're right, but I, I certainly don't think you're wrong. And I know this about our relationship, which is what's important to me. I know that you love me and care for me and would have my best interests in heart, which the older version of me would be like, whatever, dude, you feel like crap. I gotta go. But this version of me can logically... <laughs> kick in and say, you know what? This dude cares about me and he's not going to have like sat on this for however long you've been stewing, <laughs> waiting to ask me these questions and bring up these hypotheses. I know that you're doing it because you care about me. So I for sure receive this because it's incredibly valuable. I think, I think you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, and like I said, I don't know that I'm right either. I'm not comfortable typically trying to uproot or challenge anybody's self-conception, but you did express the not liking imaging and all that other stuff, and I don't know. I have to feel pretty comfortable with someone in order to say the kinds of stuff I'm saying. I think... Well, I think I don't know what I think. <laughs> well, I mean, for instance, with when people experience religious trauma and and they believe a lot of things in environments that are, you know, for all intents and purposes, pretty cultic, um, especially in, in megachurch and charismania scenarios and, you know, biblically inerrant conservative evangelical scenarios, very harvest. I've never heard charismania. I really like that. <laughs> um, you know, and, and like in my, my case, coming from a background of crusades and harvest and, and, you know, everything being about getting people to pray magic words before they die. Like oh, from, that was ATF to a core. Right, but, but uh, you know, I, that was something I worried about. I'm, and I'm not sure you did. I think, no, I don't think I did. I think, I think once I realized that I didn't care about it, I started to be bothered by the fact that it was getting shoved down other people's throats. Yeah. But there's never a point since even beginning the process of 
dismantling a lot of life, there's never been a point where you worried about, well, maybe God won't like me anymore, or maybe there isn't room for me at the table anymore, right? There's never been a point where you, where you doubted something like that. I think maybe deep down inside I didn't care, which is kind of what you've been saying the whole time. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the major problems in the modern church is a vernacular issue, uh, a word issue. Like, words become uh, unique to a tribe, the tribe of the church, you know? And honestly, from a very, I don't know why I'm going on this tangent, but very early on that bothered me. I always used to say, why can't we talk like everybody else? Why do we have to use these words? People on the outside of the church have no idea what you're saying. Why does there have to be an appendix that comes with the first service? (laughs) Or could there possibly be an appendix that comes with the first service? Because I don't know half of what you just said. And I'm I'm wondering if, I don't know, that's always bothered me. I don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And you don't like speaking to things where you don't feel like the expert in the room. You want to have all the information and then you'll speak to a situation. I just wonder what sort of way you might go about articulating things now if your background had been in divinity school or theology or something like that, because I've never heard you make any sort of committal statement on on that subject, even over the course of the this, this conversation, as I've tried to force you to gently. Um, you, I've never if, if heard I it. If I did, would it make you feel better? It's not, I'm not, it's not that it would make me feel better. It's more what? that I'm just interested in if you even ever burn to have a stance on those things ever oh i for sure did i don't anymore so it did and it did just disappeared slowly over time or yeah 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 i mean i i I was part of that vernacular i learned someone gave me the appendix (laughs) i learned the terminology and i used it rather heavily Mm -hmm. i have always been bothered by it though yeah, I have. I was as well. I hated so many of so the as soon as I realized it wasn't a requirement to be alive, <laughs> uh, I, 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 stopped, I stopped doing it. It is what I think the Bible used to call the shibboleth. It's the, it's the, um, it's the password. It's the how do I know you're part of my tribe? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because you use all these weird ass words, and it's it's designed to be off putting, like. That was the reason that we started doing that. Mm-hmm. I am somehow better because I know these things and you do not, even right. though I made them all up. So but what you're saying is that words themselves become another mask. They become another facade or another persona. But well, it becomes, interest- a, it becomes a method of uh, belonging. It's like, it's the, it's the secret password to be in the tribe, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I suppose I've always been bothered by the fact that that's super not inclusive. <laughs> like, Right, right. Why, You've always felt not... like your own, your own inclusion in the tribe was tenuous and or shaky, and therefore you didn't put much stock in it. Right. Well, and the, and the transient nature of my life insofar as touring and kind of moving around to churches because we moved a lot when I was a kid and whatever, I could always blame something else on not knowing the words. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, I've been out on the road for like six months and what are, what are we talking about? <laughs> right. 
time, though, it's like it's weird to have this conversation on the record. No, it's really good. Because it's not a conversation we wouldn't have anyway. And yet it is a conversation we haven't had anyway, at least not to this extent. So it's a conversation I haven't had internally. So <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and I say again, you're not wrong. You're pretty much the only person on the planet I would want to have this conversation with. But, yeah. So, do, you yeah. Know, do you know why I endure this discomfort? Because... Uh, the blood of Jesus? <laughs> Maybe? No. I know, I'm supposed to be non-committal at this point, right? No, I... The reason I endure at it is because I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely hoping... Well, you've, you've, like, painted me as the non-committal person, so now I'm playing the persona. I have not... <laughs> I have pointed the at the I'm thing and this, said, the there's the I'm thing. Subjecting, I'm subjecting my fiveness to this because I love you and I know you the same about me. And I I want so badly for some bit of my mumblings to 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 show somebody something they hadn't seen before that is a little ray of sunshine. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. to be to be a different perspective that somehow like drags them out of a bog. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm going to subject myself to the Kevin Inquisition <laughs> <laughs> in order, in the hopes that it achieves that. Also, good luck editing this down. Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, I have a different set of neuroses than you do, and and I'm always on the quest for authenticity and significance. So if I pester you in that way, it's because I'm just trying to help you do what comes natural to me in the same way that you try to help oh, me do what comes you natural to, to you. You don't have to justify a minute of this. Yeah. My last note is I'm hoping, I'm not asking for you to editorialize, but in my mind, I've been trying to think during this whole time to find the good in the conversation and point it out so that it helps other people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that comes through. Yeah. I genuinely want to help people improve their lives, and I, I, I just didn't want this to be a bitch fest. It wasn't at oh. all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're good. I think it'll Sorry be Sorry it wasn't an authenticity fest, which was what you wanted. <laughs> no, it was super authentic. Super authentic. I was just, I was just only just trying to do the work to help you see that it was authentic. All right. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. I think it's interesting how the way that we understand each other over time matters to how we help process each other's stories. Our perceptions of our stories evolve. Different aspects and patterns emerge which make sense for a new moment. And even listening back to this call later on, John's stories of his legs giving out and being carried off by the church people who misunderstood him, or his story about getting sick and not wanting to go into quarantine when he should have, both struck me as huge metaphors for a lot of what we talked about in general, and I didn't even notice that in the moment of the call. I guess we're all looking for clarity, and for people who can help us find it, so we keep listening and we keep speaking. This season is still nearing its finale, but we're going to continue to post new content to Patreon during the break, so you can check us out there if you haven't. And thanks so much, as always, for everyone supporting and listening, and we hope these more experimental episodes are welcome to our listeners. 
hit us up on social media and let us know. But otherwise, we will see you again next week after church for the airing of grief. Thank you.